So uh, interested in the conference, uh, look, there's QR codes out there. Um, I've seen them. They're, they're everywhere. Men's, women's restrooms, they're, they're sitting in the connection point out there. They're all over the place. Scan that with your phone. Uh, get signed up and register, and we'll see you there. All right, John chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning. John chapter 10, we're going to look at verses 1 through 9 in just a moment as we begin the second week of our series, I Am Jesus in His Own Words. Um, I want to start this way and just kind of ask you, have you ever walked into a conversation or a moment that's happening and you kind of realize that, that you've missed something, that you're not caught up into what's happening? It may be a story that someone's sharing and you're kind of sort of, you, maybe you catch the middle or you kind of get in towards the end and you're like, I don't understand what's happening in this moment. I don't understand where this is coming from. I had a moment like this in my life. The year was 1994. I'm 11 years old at this moment, so it's like life's pretty good, all right? Don't have too many cares in the world. And like any young boy, I decided, since I didn't have any cares in the world, I would deeply, emotionally, fully invest in a sports team. And I made the horrible decision to invest in the Auburn Tigers. <laughs> All right, so Auburn, I think, is 3-0 at this point. They're hosting LSU at home. Uh, and I'm doing this weird thing where I'm an Auburn fan in the 90s, but that feels like being a Bama fan now. Because, like, in 1993, Auburn went undefeated. Auburn had won the first three games of this season, so I, like, had not got a taste of losing. It's a very strange feeling. I've adapted. I've kind of come around. Auburn's hosting LSU at home. And save for the Marbury's who are over here, these LSU Tigers are not my favorite people, all right? <laughs> Auburn is down 20 to 9 going into the fourth quarter. So losing seems like it's inevitable at this point. LSU then kicks a field goal at the start of the fourth quarter. They go up 23 to 9, and my hopes are dashed. And I'm 11, so I'm not terribly mature yet, so I do what any good fan would do. I just quit. I just gave up. I just literally like, went outside into the yard, went to go play, and my dad watched me, and he let this happen. He didn't say, hey, hang around. It's not over till it's over. He just kind of let me go. So I went outside, and I played, and I did some other stuff, and then I come back later and walk in and find out that Auburn has won this football game 30-26. to 26. LSU throws five interceptions in the fourth quarter, three of which Auburn runs back for touchdowns. Their quarterback, Jamie Howard, this is like one of my favorite stats I've ever heard. If he'd have thrown, he threw 41 passes, if he'd have thrown every single one of them incomplete, he would have had a better quarterback rating for the game. terrible. Auburn wins. I, I couldn't believe it. I came back in and I was mystified. I did not understand what happened. I had no clue because I missed it. I missed all this key information. I missed all these key plays. I missed all this stuff that told the story of the comeback, how it got there. And I remember vividly my dad saying, because I asked him, what happened? What, how did he? And he just kind of said, you don't have to watch the highlights. You know? He's like, you missed it. You weren't here for it. Here is the unique thing about what we're going to encounter in John chapter 10 today. 
We're going to read this passage, and you're going to see verses that are likely very familiar to you. Really, really familiar to you. This is the passage, after all, that talks about Jesus being the good shepherd. But there's a billion times in my life I've read this passage, and I had no idea the degree to which it's impacted by all the things that come before it. Because if you and I just read these nine verses in isolation today, and we don't see and understand the story of what's happened in John chapter 9, then we don't understand the point. It's like literally coming in at the end of the game. It's like coming in at the end of the conversation. It's like coming to this place where we see the result, but we don't know how we got there. It's going to be really important for us to see that today. And here's the question for us today. Jesus is going to use this incredible I am phrase describing himself in this passage. He's going to say, I am the door. What does it mean for Jesus to say, I am the door? Let's look to John chapter 10 in these verses and then look back to chapter 9 so we can understand them. John chapter 10, beginning of verse 1, says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to me, or listen to them, rather. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. All right, one big thing we're going to see today, one big thing that is crucial, and it's this, Jesus is the door. Jesus is the door. That means he's the very entry point to God, the one through whom we have access. He is the door. And there are three things that this means for us. Because Jesus is the door, and we're going to see as this passage describes, these are the implications, the realities that you and I now walk in and experience if we have trusted in Christ. And it's these three things. Number one, we are saved. What does that mean to be saved? We're going to see that in the text. Number two, we are secure. That means we're safe. We're secure. The third thing, we are supplied. That means that we have everything that we need. That's what we're going to see in the text today. So let's begin with a little bit of background. In John chapter 9, we find the story of the man who is born blind. If you know this story, his disciples, the disciples are asking Jesus, this man, who was it that sinned? Was it him or his parents that he was caused to be born blind? And if you'll remember, Jesus said it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Remember, Jesus spits in the mud, puts it on his eyes. He's healed. It's miraculous, this incredible thing. The man has not just a physical like, like proximity style, but a real encounter with Jesus. He's transformed. He's changed. He believes in Jesus through what he's done. 
And if you'll remember, the Pharisees are having none of this. They brought the Pharisees the man who had been blind. And the Pharisee said, this man is not from God, speaking of Jesus, for he does not keep the Sabbath. So Jesus heals this man, and the Pharisees are worried about these rules. They asked him if he believed in him, and he says, yes, he did. They called to him again and said, they asked him who he is. And this is what he describes. He says, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. You know what the Pharisees' response is to this? They say, are are you the one that's going to teach us? You're going to tell us about who God is. Have you forgotten who we are? We're the religious leaders. We're the authority. We wrote the book on this. They cast him out. And Jesus said to them, this is the last verse in in John chapter 9, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. There's a ton of places in Scripture where you're going to see words like, specifically in John's Gospel, after this, or the next day, or then this happened, right? And you can kind of sort of see this natural break. There's a change in the story. There's a change in location, perhaps. Maybe, maybe Jesus and the disciples have traveled to another place. But one of the most unique things is for this profound passage in John chapter 10, there's no break from chapter 9. It's very obvious in so many ways that this is all part of one connected story. John's trying to tell us that even if where chapter 9 ends and chapter 10 begins happened later, that the encounter with the blind man... And the Pharisees is what Jesus has in view. That's exactly the context that Jesus is using when he tells them that he is the door. We're going to see this in these next nine verses. To understand what Jesus means, him being the door, we need to know a couple things. Number one, if you read uh, or listened to, either way, when we looked at verse 6, you saw this this figure of speech Jesus used as the words John records. So verse 6 indicates that this is not a parable. What Jesus is doing in this moment is he's not using a phrase, the kingdom of God is like. It's not a parable. It's really just a word picture. Jesus is taking these words, this imagery about shepherds and sheep and a gatekeeper and a door and pasture and all of these things to help these people understand who he is. Second, to understand what Jesus means, we have to have some knowledge about sheep. And not just sheep, but sheep in the Middle East at this time in history. And look, I I, I think I would know you well enough to know that you have the understanding that sheep are not the smartest animals that God's created. They're just not crazy intelligent. They need a lot of help. They need a lot of guidance. They need a lot of security. They need a lot of care. They have to be tended constantly and to be looked after. And the way that they were cared for after they grazed would be that they'd be led into an enclosure for safety. There's a photo here I want to show you, and this is probably a a little bit more of a modernized version, and it's a really nicer picture of what one of these enclosures would be. But this is ultimately the sheepfold that Jesus is talking about. Nothing fancy, it's just rocks stacked up in a circle. But you'll notice one thing about the entry point 
Jesus says, I am the door. And I don't know about you, but when I look at this, I don't see a door. I see an opening. I don't know many of us that would like want to have a home and say, hey, this is the door. And it's just wide open all the time. But this was customary for shepherds in this time. There were two kinds of sheepfolds, places that sheep would be found after they grazed. One was the kind like this that was found in the countryside. It was just a circle of rocks that was built up with an opening that was described as the door. Second, the other kind would be the one that would be in towns or villages. And shepherds would bring in their flocks at night. They would bring in their flocks into this giant sheepfold, which is a larger version of this. And the sheep would be kept by a gatekeeper. Now, why? Because there was also no door. Just an opening. So the gatekeeper would be the one that would make sure that none of the sheep escaped and that no one other than the shepherd could get in. Now, in the morning, the shepherd, who had taken a night's rest, would come back and relieve the gatekeeper, and he would call his sheep by name. He would call them out to follow him, to lead them out to pasture. And this kind of sheepfold, the one that's in the city, this is the one that's in view as Jesus begins this passage. Look down to verse 1 and see what you see. Jesus paints this picture and he mentions a thief and a robber. Here's the connection to chapter 9. When Jesus describes a thief and a robber, the one who would essentially hop the fence, the one who would climb over the stones, who knew he couldn't get past the gatekeeper because he was not the shepherd of the sheep, this thief, this robber, this one who would come in a deceivious way to try to get the sheep, to try to take them for their meat and kill them, to try to fleece them, to try to lead them astray, Jesus is saying... That this is who the Pharisees are. He's telling them directly to their face that this is not just a critique, this is an indictment. This is who you are. You are thieves and you are robbers. You are actually the ones who are blind. You are mistreating the people of Israel. You're stealing from them. You're fleecing them. You're intentionally taking life from them and leading them astray. Why? Because these religious leaders are failing to show God's people the very Son of God, Jesus, that has been promised. Look back to Ezekiel 34, and I'm going to put it on the screen, and you can see what Jesus is talking about. The shepherd imagery, we know, runs rampant throughout Scripture. And it's not just that that's a common thing that's used consistently, but the people of God saw God as their shepherd. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. What does Psalm 103 say? That we are the people of God, the sheep of his pasture. So shepherd imagery is not just relegated to a time and a place. It's really how God is described. In Ezekiel 34, we get this picture of the leaders of Israel trusting in their own works, seeking life in themselves, serving themselves, using others, and the God who needs to rescue them. This is Ezekiel 34, 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, 
Ah, shepherds of Israel, you who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered. Because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. This is what Jesus has in mind in John chapter 10 when he's describing the way that the religious leaders are seeking to lord over and rule the people of Israel. They're ruling harshly. They're demanding that they keep the letter of the law, but they're leading them away from the spirit of the law that points to Jesus Christ, the one true God. So what is God's answer to this? Look at Ezekiel 34, 22 through 24. This is what he says. He says, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Here's the wild thing. You and I read that and you say, oh, well, yeah, sure, King David, a shepherd. When this is prophesied, David is long since dead. He's gone. So what does this language mean? How can David be the shepherd? In Hebrew, this word is meant to stand as a family name, a a line, a through path, a lineage. You know what God is saying in this moment? There's one that will come from the line of David. He will be the one shepherd. He shall feed them. He shall care for them. This one that's being prophesied about is Jesus. This one is the good shepherd. Look into verse 2 and this is what you see. He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. In verse 2 you see that the one who truly has access to the sheep The one who truly has access to God's people, the one that truly has access to those that are in the sheepfold, is only the shepherd of those sheep. He's the one that has authority and true ownership over them. And you can see this very clearly in verse 3, because the gatekeeper opens to him. It's the shepherd that has the authority and the ability to go in and get his sheep. And here's the unique thing. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep, look at this, by name and leads them out. Notice that they hear his voice. They recognize his call. Now, shepherds in the Near East, this is different than than in many ways how we see shepherding in the West and the idea of like sheepdogs and stuff, right? Like herding. Like you have these dogs that go behind and they push and they drive sheep to a particular place or a destination. But in the east, it's, it's vastly different. Sheep are led. The shepherd is out in front and the sheep follow. They're not pushed. And they're really not even pulled as much as they're guided. And the sheep know to follow. Here's the other thing. 
shepherds in the east had specific calls for their sheep. A specific call. Now, this is probably like not weird to us. We might look back in the past and say, they don't do it in the old days like they do it now, right? But like, I don't know about you, but nobody has a dog named Dog. Nobody has just a cat named Cat. What do you and I do with our animals? We name them, right? We name them. Very personal names. We have a cat, and his name is Mango. Doesn't make a ton of sense. Nothing tropical about it. Good dude, though. Mango's a good cat. We have a bird. His name is Arthur. Really great. Love the bird. He has a very specific call. Mia will whistle to him very specifically, and when, when he hears that, he knows it's her. We also have a bunny, and she mostly lives outside and hates everyone. Um, she does have a name. Her name is Melody. Um, kind of falls flat for the analogy here. But um, look, here's the thing. You name pets, and they, they know your voice. They know who you are. Here's the other thing. You and I know who we're responsible to by who calls our name. You ever done this thing when you were a kid and you got in a bunch of trouble and every one of your Christian names was called? All three of your names? You heard that and you knew it was serious. And you knew somebody meant business. And that person that meant business was your mom or dad. It was your parent. I want you to think about this, too. Um, I had an experience where we went on a vacation, we went on a trip, and, w- and we took the girls with us, and we were in kind of a crowded market, and I, and I, for a minute, just lost Millie for a second, our daughter, our oldest. Now, she wasn't gone far at all, but when I called her name, I heard her voice, and I looked at her face, and she used, and knew it was me. She knew it. She could sense it. She could feel it. Why? Because there's real relationship there. What this illustrates is that our Lord and Savior is not concerned with us on merely a corporate level, but personally, genuinely, that we're His and that He loves us. This means that you and I shouldn't only follow the call of the Lord, but we listen for His voice. And also, what about this, that, that not only does he call them by name, but he leads them out. Here, Jesus is saying something incredibly profound. He's stating that he's fulfilling Ezekiel 34. How? Because in this passage, this leading out of this sheepfold, the sheepfold's got to be something. If he's saying, if he's providing an analogy, if he's telling a story, if he's saying there's a metaphor, then this sheepfold that they're being led out of is something. And people typically have thought it's three things. Either one, they've thought it's heaven, but that doesn't hold up well because the Lord doesn't lead out of heaven. Second, some have thought it's the church. That doesn't make any sense either. How would people be led out of the church? But the consensus view is that what Jesus is doing, the the place that he's leading the sheep out of, it's Israel. It's ultimately Judaism. He's come to call Israel out to trust him and follow him as Savior, as the Son of the living God, the Messiah. You look at this, you can see this in context when you look at verse 16, because he's talking about this fold. If, you look in, if you've got your Bible before you and you look at John chapter 10 down at verse 16, you're going to see that there's sheep from another fold that are going to come and follow Jesus. 
Sheep from a, a different fold, he says. Who are those? Well, those are not just Israel that Jesus is calling out. Those are the Gentiles. And everything that Ezekiel 34 prophesies about nations coming to know the Lord, people being called from different places, different countries, this is what is happening here in this moment. And so Jesus in verse 4, it says, When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. In the Hebrew language, and in Aramaic as well, when Jesus is speaking, one of the things that he's doing is he's repeating things and he's sharing things again. At the start of the passage, he says, truly, truly, I say to you. That's for emphasis. It's to really drive home the point that, hey, listen up, what I'm saying matters. This is true, but i got to tell you, it's truly true. It's really real, and it's really important. And in this moment in verse 4, he's doing the same thing. He goes before them, and they follow him. He states again that they follow him and that they know his voice. You're going to see two pivotal things here. Number one, those who belong to Christ follow because they know his voice. It's relational. It's genuine understanding. Because here's the thing. Sheep are foolish. They wander. We know that. Sheep put themselves in danger. So do we. But ultimately, we know the voice of the shepherd, and it causes us to follow because we trust him. Second, here's the next thing. The shepherd, Jesus, goes before the sheep. He doesn't push them from behind. He leads them from out front. What does he do that for? Because he makes the path clear. He's guiding, but he's also protecting against any danger along the way. This is who Jesus is. Look into verse 5. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This is a verse and part of a passage that ought to give us deep assurance. Those who belong to the true shepherd will follow him, will flee from false teachers and false shepherds, people who come to lead us astray. Are we going to be perfect? No, not at all. But we will be faithful. Why? Jesus is not characterizing here the faithfulness of the sheep, but the faithfulness of the voice that leads us. It's him. That's what the sheep follow because they know him. Now, we talked about verse 6 ultimately being one in which we see the word picture that Jesus describes, look down into verse 7. Jesus says again to them, there's that emphatic repetition, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Jesus is saying who he is again, but he's doing it in a deeper way because now he's not only the shepherd, as he's made clear to this point, but he's also the gate or the door itself. What does that mean? Remember that picture we threw up, that picture of, of the one in the countryside, that sheepfold in the countryside. That's what Jesus is talking about here. In this word picture, in this metaphor, what Jesus is doing is he's taking all of these different elements to communicate the reality of who he is. And so this is what he's doing with this sheepfold. He's saying, look, I'm the door of the sheep. So how do the sheep stay protected? How do they keep from escaping? Well, in the previous sheepfold that we talked about, the one that you would find in the cities or the towns or the villages that shepherds would bring their sheep into at night, there was a gatekeeper. But these shepherds that are in the countryside, they don't have a gatekeeper. 
There is no one to watch the flock for them while they sleep. You want to talk about, like, this is Luke 2. Tending their flocks by night. This is what the shepherds are doing. They're in this remote place. They're in this pasture. So, so much of, of Judah, this area is a plateau. And there's no, there's no good way to grow crops. So it's just all this area that's exposed for sheep to go and graze upon. And there's predators. There's people who would come attack and who would steal. So what if there's no gatekeeper here? The shepherds become the gate. They literally lay down, prostrate, they lay down across the ground, across the opening. The shepherd becomes the gate. At the turn of the 20th century, there was this prominent British visitor uh, to the Syrian hills, this area of the world. His name was Sir George Adam Smith. And there's one evening that he watched with fascination as shepherds drove their sheep into the sheepfold. Shepherds are checking them with the rod and the staff. They're kind of examining them. They're seeing if there's any wounds or any marks or any any cuts or scrapes or any of those types of things. Really assessing where the sheep are. And they'll put the rod there and check the sheep and then let the sheep in. And he saw this thing or these things rather take place, but he was confused. He, He said he noticed that the fold was no more then this enclosure with only one opening, there's no real door, there's no real gate. And so we asked the shepherd, how can you ensure that the sheep won't wander off at night? And what about the wild beasts? Will they not come and attack these helpless sheep? And the shepherd simply replied, no. Because I am the one whose body blocks the opening at night. I lie down across this opening. No sheep can get out without going over me, and no thief or wolf can get in except over my body. This is what it means for Jesus to say, I am the door. He's the only way through. There's no way to circumvent Jesus. If you want to get to God, you go through Jesus. No one comes to the Father but through Him. He protects His children and His children are His because they know His voice. And the salvation and the freedom that He gives us comes through in this imagery that He's placed here. Because what does He do? He lays down His life for the sheep. Literally. This is what the shepherd does. He lays down His life to protect His own. Look at verse 9. It says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Here are the three things, these big implications for you and I. If we've trusted in Christ, if we've believed in Jesus, here are the three realities for us that we've trusted as Jesus' is the door. Number one, you're saved. Look at verse 9. Anyone enters by me, he will be saved. You're justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You've been saved. You're justified. You are being saved. You're being sanctified. And you will be saved. You'll be glorified. Salvation, past, present, and future. Second, not only says if anyone enters by me, he will be saved, but also and will go in and out and find pasture. 
This means you're not only saved, but you're also secure. Because this language of in and out is not just directional. It has this really deep meaning. You look in Deuteronomy chapter 26 and verse 8. 1 Kings 3, 7, and look at this one. This is Psalm 121, 8. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. What does that mean? Well, James Montgomery Boyce says it in this way. This is how he describes the security language that this is. He says, in Christ's day, when a man could go in or out without fear, it meant that his country was at peace and that the ruler had the affairs of the nation under control. Because Jesus is the I am, because he's the door, you are secure and you can be at peace in God's sovereign care over your life. You're secure. You're protected by him. Third, you're not only saved, you're not only secure, you're also supplied. For sheep to find pasture, especially good pasture, is not just a, a blessing or a normal provision, it's extraordinary, it's lavish. So when David uses that language in Psalm 23, he makes me lie down beside what? So waters, green pastures, right? All of these type of things would not be just normal in this day and age and this climate. This area is largely barren. Good pasture is not easy to find. But in Jesus, we're supplied because God meets all of our needs. That's what Paul would write in Philippians 4. All of our needs met in the riches of Christ Jesus. So what does it mean for Jesus to say that I am the door? This is what it means. It means that he is the only way to God. He's the one who grants us entry into relationship with the Father. It means that if we hear his voice, we follow him. It means if you've trusted in him, these three things. You are saved. You are secure. And you're supplied. Is that not worth celebrating? So what do we do with that? If these things are true, what does that mean for us? Number one, and, and, and this is an appeal, this is an urge, this is a beg. If you have not trusted Jesus, let today be the day of salvation. Come and repent and believe the gospel. Come through the door. Second would be this. Hold the door. Hold the door. You ever held a door for somebody? What did you do? You granted them entryway. How do you and I do that? Man, we, we share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. We let others know that they can be saved, that they can be secured, that they can be supplied for every need. Look, I, this will be my challenge to you this week. Um, there is someone that you know by name that you long for Jesus to know by name. I don't know who that person is for you. I know who it is for me because at 2 o'clock this morning, I heard that name. I want you to pray and ask the Lord to reveal that person to you. And you just go tell them how good your God is. How Jesus has loved you. That he's not distant, but that he's near. That he's within you. And that you are lost without life apart from him. And that he is the door to the living God and that they can know him too. Could we do that this week? Could we find one person in our life? And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking of that one person because if you say one person, and you're like, I know that one person and I don't want to talk to that one person. I'm scared to share this with that one person. And I just want to let you know that at some point in your life, you were that one person and God calls you to believe. So let's go share the good news with them.
Jesus is the door, and for us, it means everything. If you will, as our worship team comes, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we can trust that we are in you, that we know you, because we've come to you through your Son, Jesus. Father, this morning, my prayer would be for brothers and sisters to to embrace and to recognize and to delight in the fact that we're saved. Father, that we are secure in you. Father, that you've supplied every possible need that we have. God, would that cause us to share that good news with others? And this morning I pray, Father, that if there is one here who does not know you, who has not repented and believed, who has not been through the door that is your son Jesus, Father, that even in this moment you would draw them unto yourself by the power of your Spirit. Father, we worship you our allegiance, our loyalty, our life, Father, we will follow you as we walk by the power of your Spirit and are led by your Son, Jesus, the Good Shepherd, our King. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.